0: Our Christmas series, God Speaks. Two weeks ago, Matt looked at how, in the beginning of time, 6,000 years ago, God spoke to the problem of our sin. God spoke of a coming Saviour, a serpent crusher, who would defeat and undo the work of the devil. Two weeks ago, sorry, last week, Sam looked at how, through history, God has continued to speak. And Sam looked at the book of Isaiah and a prophecy where God again speaks of a coming Savior, a servant of the Lord who is going to defeat the power of sin through his own personal sacrificial atonement. This week we see that God speaks again. He announces the coming of his serpent crusher, the coming of the servant of the Lord, the birth of Jesus Christ. The time for redemption has come. And today we hear God speak a message about the blessings that come from his redemptive plan. And so it is a message of good news, of great joy. Let us pray. Father, speak to us this morning through your word. Guard my words, Lord, and keep me from error. Help us to treasure your words in our hearts and to ponder the revelation of the Messiah. Amen. Well, Christmas is almost upon us, and Christmas is a sweet time of year, is it not? As uh, the words to the song that, I, that was playing on the radio at work went, "It is the most wonderful time of the year." The decorations are bright, the food is rich, uh, the songs are like treacle, and as I sit at work, the ambience—dare I say—the ambience is mixed. It's almost conflicting. You see the sweet music plays over the PA system or from the radio and the ward is, is glowing and shimmering with all those fairy lights and the nurses are all sporting their, their Christmas shirts which are bright and colourful as they go here and there about the ward. And yet as they go here and there about the ward and they're changing bed sheets and bed pans, their faces are less than festive. And I look at uh, the doctor across from me, and he looks stressed. And I know that he's got some trouble at home. The doctors, uh, sorry, the patients, they look sick, and, and some of them look uncomfortable. And one of them passed during the week. And still, the tune plays on over the radio. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the happiest season of all, the lyrics continue With those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings, when friends come to call, it's the happiest season of all. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And I'm forced to reflect, why, again, is this the most wonderful time of the year? You see, secular Christmas carries a tune which is sublime, but it carries it without any substance. It's like a story without a narrative or like a song without lyrics. Why, why, I asked the song, why is this the most wonderful time of the year? And the song continues. Well, apparently it's because there'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and the tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. Forgive me for perhaps being a little bit of a grinch, but uh, this all seems just a little bit hollow, doesn't it? Secular Christmas has the essence of sublime because the song of secular Christmas is sung to the tune of the spiritual celebration it once reflected. And what we celebrate at spiritual Christmas is more than sublime, it's it's divine. But the narrative of the spiritual celebration has been lost. And now at best we have, according to the song, parties for hosting and marshmallows for toasting And at worst, we have the mayhem of pre-Christmas shopping. And so the tune of Christmas no longer matches the reality that many people experience. It's like watching the Shawshank Redemption to the theme music of I'm Walking on Sunshine. But friends, it's not my purpose to, to bring you back down to earth this morning. No, it's my purpose to actually raise your sights to heaven. I don't want to shatter your nostalgic fiction and bring you into the mundane, I want to remind you of the eternal truth of good news. I want us to recapture the narrative of Christmas this morning. I want us to remember the time, the moment in history, when God interrupted our darkness with bright heavenly choirs which filled the night sky, when God spoke a message of joy and of hope, of reversal and redemption, when God spoke and Jesus arrived. What we have here is good news. It is cause for rejoicing. This is the narrative that is going to bring us joy. Why? Well, firstly, because God has spoken and it is true. Secondly, because God has spoken and it is good. And thirdly, because God has spoken and it is for you. Firstly, then, it is true. Unlike Christmas fantasy, the Nativity is fact. It is the feel good story that never ends because it actually happened. We can trust this. At this time of year, when when fiction and fantasy abound, we've been intentional in showing that what we have in the Bible, God's word to us, is not another myth. It is true, it is dependable. And so two weeks ago, Matt showed us that what we have here in the Bible is empirically true. It accurately accords with our reality. It accurately accounts for the world around us, why it is the way that it is, and why indeed we are the way that we are. God's word is empirically true. It matches up to reality. Last week, Sam showed us that God's word is prophetically true. It announces things in advance, and they come to pass just as predicted. In Isaiah 41, God challenges the false gods. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? Who can predict what will happen tomorrow? The false gods can't. Who can predict it? I can't. You can't. The Bureau of Meteorology can't. The financial analysts, the, the, the political advisers they can't they're all but guessing but hundreds of years in advance God announces with great detail the coming of the Messiah and it comes to pass exactly as he said it would God's word is prophetically true now today I want you to come away knowing that God's word is irrefutably true what do I mean by this Luke wrote in such a way as to give us a historical record of the coming of Jesus, a record that, should it be in error, could be refuted. Luke was a highly educated man, a physician by trade, and he opens his gospel account in this way. We'll read the verses again. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." The first thing that the Greek scholars will tell us is that these four verses are written in a style of Greek that is unique. It's not common speak, it's, it's academic, it's less, hey mate, here are the nuts and bolts of the situation, and more, this dissertation is a critique of the blah, 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 okay? So the first one is how normal people speak, and the second one is how you speak when you're doing research and writing in academic spheres. Luke begins his gospel the same way a Greek historian would begin writing a historical account for posterity. I'm sure that Luke's reader is actually quite happy that as of verse 5 he changes back to common speak. <clears throat> uh, but in these first four verses, he lists five credentials that he has for writing this work. Firstly, number one, having followed. This work carries the signature of Luke's personal investigation. Having followed all things, Luke has been comprehensive. He's utilised all available uh, evidence relevant to the history. From the beginning, he says, uh, an oath and literally from the first. I think the ESV uh, renders it slightly differently, but but a literal translation is from the beginning. and, And Luke's research has traced all the way back to the very beginning of this movement of salvation history back to the conception of John. Indeed, he's such a meticulous chap that he alone among the gospel accounts actually traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam because Jesus is the new Adam and he is the saviour for all mankind. Luke hasn't cut any corners. He's followed closely, number four. The idea is that he's, he's followed and he's researched carefully. He isn't like an American TV reporter talking about a cyclone hitting a city on the other side of the world that he actually doesn't even know how to place on the map. He just knows it's pronounced Cairns or Canes or something like that. What Luke reports is complete and accurate because he has a detailed and close knowledge of the situation. And finally, Luke tells us that he's presented an orderly account. I will say that for those of us who believe the word of God, Luke's authority is primarily, is firstly, spiritual We know that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit as he wrote, and so what he wrote was inerrant. But for those who haven't yet come to this understanding of Scripture, Luke gives them the assurance that he is writing an orderly account. It is thoroughly researched. It serves as an accurate account of what actually happened. He hasn't mixed up his facts. He hasn't mixed up the narrative. What is written is comprehensive. It is researched and it is accurate. In doing all this, Luke actually makes himself vulnerable. He opens himself up to refute and to correction. He's actually written in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and together they form 27% of the New Testament. He's actually the largest contributor, humanly speaking, uh, to the New Testament. God authored it all. Um, And his writings are replete with details. They're replete with names and cities and times and dates. And so he's embedded it with all these facts that can be refuted. And so he's opened himself up. He's made himself vulnerable. If he hasn't done his homework, if he hasn't written an accurate account, people can stand up and say so. If we look at the very next verse in Luke, so we go down to Luke 1.5, let me read it. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. There are nine details in that one verse that could be refuted. Let me go through it all. In the time of a certain king, whose name happened to be Herod, and he ruled in a place or a jurisdiction called Judea, there happened to be a priest, and his name was Zechariah. He was of the division of Abijah. He wasn't single, but he was married, and he was married to one of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. There are nine statements where someone could have said, either then or now, they could have stood up and said, Hey, Luke, you got that one wrong. And as you read through Luke, he continues to embed his narrative with such detail. And trust me, there have been many people who have tried to prove him lo- uh, pro- prove him wrong. Within the modern period of archaeology, there have been many who have sought to discredit Luke as a historian, but none have actually succeeded. William Ramsey was an archaeology student and a pupil of the Tobingan theory, uh, a school of thought that taught that the Bible was not accurate. It's in error. It's fictitious. If we don't have archaeological evidence of it, it didn't happen. In 1880, he obtained a a scholarship from Oxford to travel abroad and do primary archaeological investigations. He actually went on to become one of the leading authorities in archaeology, and he was actually awarded an honorary member status of just about every archaeological society of the then day and, and the societies for historical inquiry. Beyond that, he actually received honorary doctorates from multiple different universities in multiple countries indeed, on multiple continents. In 1906, he was knighted due to his vast contribution to the field of archaeology, and so uh, we now know him as Sir William Ramsay. And 35 years after he travelled to the field, after he travelled to the field, bringing with him his scepticism about the biblical account, he writes uh, primarily concerning the Luke, book of Luke-Acts. He writes about the book of Luke and Acts. That, <clears throat> Let me read it. Further study showed that the book could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. A bit further on, he writes, you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian. More recently, the professor of archaeology at Wheaton College, uh, John McRae, wrote... The general consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars is that Luke is very accurate as a historian. He is erudite, he is eloquent, his Greek, approaches classical quality. He writes as an educated man and archaeological discoveries are showing over and over again that Luke is accurate in what he has to say. Much of modern criticism has unsuccessfully attempted to discredit Luke on the broader details of his work the naming of cities and places and timing and and the occurrences of censuses and so on. And this criticism has failed. But perhaps more important than the failure of modern criticism is the absence that we have of contemporary criticism. Luke provides us with the details of events that actually happened and that are integral to the belief of Christians. Details that would have been open to investigation in the first and second century, would have been open to refute. And Luke circulated his account widely, and yet the Roman and Jewish historians from the time, though they were unfavorably disposed towards Luke and his belief system, or disposed towards Christianity at least, they do not refute Luke's account. They could have said, hey, we looked into it, this Zachariah and Elizabeth, they never had this son that you call John that you speak of, this one apparently given to them miraculously in their old age or or we look through the records there is no Zachariah in the in the division of Abijah or he was married to someone else when the gospel of Luke enters the witness box it stands up under cross-examination it provides us with a true testimony of what happened what we have here is good news because it is true God has spoken and it is true If you're watching the Muppets Christmas Carol, it will end after an hour and a half. And you'll have to turn off the TV and you'll have to leave the fairy tale and return to reality. But what we have here in the Bible is the truth that transforms reality. And this truth is good. And with that, we move on to our second point. I want to direct our attention to the second portion of uh, scripture that Kylie kindly read for us. Allow me to, to read it again quickly by way of refresher as it had been told them. Good news of great joy. Peace. A saviour. Is this what you are searching for this Christmas? You wouldn't be alone. It's, It's a bit of a perennial thread through human history. We are always searching for this peace, but we are never achieving it. In September 1938, a plane lands on an airstrip just outside of London, Neville Chamberlain, then British Prime Minister, hops out. He's greeted by an anxious crowd and he produces in his hand a piece of paper that he victoriously waves around, the Anglo-German Declaration. Later that day at 10 Downing Street, he utters perhaps his most famous words, peace for our time. And there are celebrations. Britain needed a saviour, and Neville Chamberlain has become that savior. He has brought good news of great joy because he has brought peace. Now, those familiar with the history will know that the celebrations were short lived because less than a year later, Hitler breaks the agreement and he invades Poland. World War II begins, and so does six years of misery. History is punctuated with such disappointments. The original readers of Luke's Gospel had no shortage of problems and disappointments. They needed a savior, they needed peace. They needed good news and hope. They needed the Son of God. And all of those titles, Saviour, Peace, Good News, Hope, Son of God, all of those titles, Emperor Augustus humbly applied to himself. He repeatedly promoted himself as Saviour of the common folk and indeed Saviour of the world. Of course, his failure to live up to his titles uh, indeed makes Chamberlain's shortcomings quite uh, modest indeed. we look for peace, we look for good news, we look for deliverance, but so often we look for it in the wrong places. Today the angels announce those titles for Jesus Christ and through the book of Luke every one of those titles will be attributed to Jesus. I want to ask you what are you holding on to this morning as your hope? What is going to be your deliverance? What is going to be your joy? Sometimes it seems that every attempt under heaven to bring such good tidings fails. At Christmas, we remember that God has seen our need and he has seen our pain. We read through the narrative in Luke and we see those who are oppressed and poor and hungry. They suffer injustice and disadvantage. Here we see the shepherds, brutish simpletons, often forced out of society into a nomadic lifestyle. And there they sit in darkness until suddenly a light appears. An angel of God comes to them and we read that the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the angel says, fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now we have a proclamation of peace that is different. Why? Because this peace has a champion. This peace will come through the work of a saviour, and this saviour is not like Chamberlain or Augustus. No, he is identified to be none other than Christ the Lord. The first title, Christ, connects him to the fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies, of which there are many, and we'll look at two in the preceding weeks. The second title, Lord, hints at his divinity, something which will be further unpacked as the Gospel of Luke and Acts progresses. And so while every effort under heaven to bring peace is frustrated, God parts the heavens and he comes down and he enters the situation. He enters the situation as a baby lying in a manger and he promises peace to those with whom he is pleased. And this peace comes because he will fix our problem at its very root. As Matt reminded us two weeks ago, that root is sin, that problem is sin. And as Sam reminded us, Jesus will deal with it through sacrificial atonement, through giving his very own life on the cross. And today we're reminded that the message is a message of good news and great joy. The message of joy at Christmas is not that the world has been fixed, but that the victory has been won, and so the world will be fixed. The victory is assured, and so we have a hope in the future, and we have joy in the present. And so we sing. We sing not just at Christmas. We're Christians. We sing year-round. We can take up the words of Mary earlier in in the chapter. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. We can stand with Zechariah and we can cry out, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation. We might actually read that one in full. It's in chapter 1. Give you a second to open your Bibles, verse 68. might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, this is Zechariah prophesying over his son John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give, and pay attention to, to this part, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. We can stand with Zachariah, and we can sing that song with him because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. God has spoken and it is true. God has spoken and it is good. And now thirdly, God has spoken and it's for you. Note what the scripture says. This is a message of good news and great joy that will be for Jews only? No. For the rich? No, certainly not. For the righteous? Or for those who have their lives all together? Or for those who are raised in a nice Christian home? For those who are intelligent? Or for those who are able? For those who are wise? No. The angels proclaim the message of God, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. If you're looking for good news this Christmas, if you're looking for joy, know that God has spoken. And he speaks to your need, and he speaks to your situation, and he knows your sin. And yet he speaks for you to hear. But I want you also to know that while God speaks this good news to all people, not all people will receive this good news, and so it says, "Peace among those with whom He is pleased." I need you to know this morning that God is calling you to faith and repentance. As we read elsewhere in the Scriptures, in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. We read in Acts seventeen thirty. Uh, now He commands all people everywhere. To repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. God speaks. God calls you to repentance and faith. God has spoken, and it's for you. <clears throat> so then I want us to consider what tune we shall be singing this Christmas. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Is this going to be the narrative of your Christmas celebration? Is this going to be the narrative of your life's celebration? A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Is this going to be the melody of your heart? Fall on your knees, oh hear the angel voices. Have you heard the angel voices? Have you heard through the pages of the Holy Scripture that God has spoken? Some people get distressed. They get distressed that God has never spoken directly, audibly to them. He is, in their opinion, silent. Why can't God speak to me and reveal himself, they say? I understand where they 're coming from. I have never heard God speak audibly to me. Sometimes I wish that I had, and sometimes i 'm very, very glad that i haven 't because I, I fear that I might embarrass myself. But I want to tell you this morning that while we might not have heard God speak audibly, he is far from silent at the beginning of history. He spoke in a definitive way to Adam and Eve throughout history. He has continued to speak, and here we read that on this night, this high point in human history, when the very Son of God enters into human history, God speaks yet again, and he speaks through his messengers, the angels, and he speaks in an unmissable way. If they had a noise curfew back then, I'm pretty sure that God violated it. A whole choir of heavenly angels singing good news. And they sung it to the shepherds. And God had Luke a meticulous historian, investigate and record these things, things that couldn't be fabricated, things that could be refuted if indeed they had never happened. And God had Luke record these things because this good news is good news for all people. <clears throat> and so God speaks to you today through his word. God has spoken and it is empirically true. God has spoken and it is prophetically true. God has spoken and it is irrefutably true. God has spoken and it is good news and God has spoken and it is for you. God has spoken to your need and God has spoken to your pain. God has spoken to your suffering and God has spoken to your sin. Indeed God has spoken by sending his son and God has spoken news of great joy. The shepherds sat in darkness till they heard the message and they were bathed in glorious light as the heavens teemed with the angelic choir, all singing praises to God. We too sit in darkness. As Zachariah puts it, sit in darkness in the shadow of death. We sit in darkness till we too hear the message of the gospel. But like the shepherds, we do not enter into its joy. We do not sing praise until we respond until we go and we search out the Christ, until we find Jesus. It's only then that we return, glorifying and praising God. If you're yet to respond in faith and repentance, yet to heed the proclamation of the angels, yet to pay attention to the word of God, I encourage you, don't stay sitting in darkness on a hillside watching sheep. Rise, go in haste as the shepherds did. Go, investigate the message of the gospel, investigate the message of the good news that was spoken. God has spoken and it's for you. And if you are of those who have responded, those upon whom the favour of God now rests, if you have made your search for the baby and you have found the Messiah, the fulfilment of God's promises from long ago, then raise your voices this Christmas. It's only fitting that we sing. We can join with the heavenly choir. We can join in the chorus of heaven. We can sing the glory, uh, sorry, we, we can sing glory to the God who has spoken into our history. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us in darkness, but have proclaimed good news of great joy. Let our hearts exult in your glorious work this Christmas. Let our mouths erupt with your praises. Let our eyes behold the babe in the manger, none other. Than Christ the Lord, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has visited and redeemed his people, raised up a horn of salvation, shown the mercy promised to our fathers, and provided the knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. Because of your tender mercy, our night has become day. Guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen mm <clears throat>